we're on. Pete. Good afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not excited about this at all. You're actually here. I'm actually here. You're yep. here physically in the flesh in Darwin. Yep. I, I was wanting to see the sorts of things that you say to our guests before we sit down and do this podcast. So I needed to be slightly more educated on it myself. So I thought, get up here on an aeroplane and find out what's going on. Well, good on you. Good on you. All right. Well, we are here recording episode 17 of the Boundless Possible podcast. Did you ever imagine we were going to get up to 17 when we first started? Uh, no. When, 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 <laughs> when we did episode one, I thought we could be in trouble. <laughs> All right. So episode 17, I'm really uh, thrilled uh, to tell you all that our special guest today is Dr. Andrew Taylor. Now, I'm just trying to think, have we ever had a doctor on this podcast before? I, I struggle to think so. No, no ne- so neither a medical doctor or um, the other type of doctor. A PhD doctor. Yeah, that type right, of thing. Right, right, right. So um, here we are. Hello, Andrew. Uh, Leon and Peter, hi. Thanks for having me, I think. <laughs> you can tell us out of the podcast <laughs> in a little while yes so um i've been pretty keenly chasing you uh to be on this podcast now for a little while and mm. it started when i read i think it was an article in the abc about northern territory population that you might have commented on or it might have even been the nt news actually now that i think about it um but uh, before we get into your uh, area of expertise and, and, and what you did your PhD in, what's your territory story, Andrew? Oh, boy. Um, so I came to the territory when I was uh, 11, I think it was, with my family. And the reason we came here from Perth was because my stepfather was an illegal bookmaker. Uh, wow. to, Pete's loving that already. Yeah, <laughs> so you can read all about it in his book, uh, to the rich and famous of Australia, um, hence the book. And we were kind of chased out of other states by federal police. And at the time, the Territory wow. Government was um, opening, uh, facilitating legal betting shops in the Northern Territory. And... Uh, my dad got the right, my stepfather got the rights to operate the Malak betting shop. So this was when there was no TAB, um, and that brought us to Darwin. I We lived on Ryland Road in Nightcliffe, opposite Nightcliffe High School, and I went to Nightcliffe High School, which was a great time. Lots of fond memories um, there, and um, it was literally a one-minute walk from my bedroom to the classroom in the morning, so I was pretty happy about that. I could drink my coffee on the way. <laughs> right. And so, okay, so you spent a fair bit of your childhood here in the Territory. I always say I grew up here. And um, then my first, uh, I went, then left to go to university at, at uh, University of Queensland for my undergraduate and came back to work at the Bureau of Statistics here in Darwin in 1990, I think as the first ever graduate officer, as they were called, um, in the Bureau of Statistics in Darwin. And um, I thought I was going to change the world and <laughs> change how statistics were collected and you know fix all these problems around Indigenous statistics and things um, and how we look at Indigenous knowledges and in, in official statistics. And um, so I turned up to the front door of the ABS with a tie on and... Um, <laughs> Definitely a southern mindset, 
about what I was going to change. And um, a very, very good man called Barry Messer, um, may he rest in peace, greeted me at the door and said, go home and take your tie off. And, and boy, you're right, it changed that shirt. And as he opened the door, this plume of smoke came out and hit me <laughs> within the office. And I could only see him and nobody else in the office through the door. It was um, different times in Darwin then. I remember that, actually. I also worked for a guy called Barry, but he was in the superannuation office. And I'm struggling to think of his last name, but I do remember back in the 1990, mm. in the public service, uh, smoking was allowed indoors, which was a bit of a shock because I also came from Perth. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, that was a big no-no down there. So mm. you know. It's hard to believe, isn't it? I, I had a similar experience the first time I moved to Dubai, which was a lot later than that. And whenever we'd have meetings similar to this, we'd we'd go to an office and, and meet with whoever we were meeting with and they'd always say, quick, come to the boardroom. And I was the only non-smoker. Oh and everybody God. would just light up and you know, within a few <laughs> days I had a, a chest cold because yeah. every meeting I had I was seeing these smoke-filled rooms. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, when I went back, that had, that had all finished. But that was still early 2000s they were doing that. Right, right. So, um, Andrew... Uh, what did you do your undergraduate degree in? Economics. In economics, right. Yes. Oh, yes, Don't yes. hold that against me. No, that's all right. I also did an undergrad <laughs> in Echo, so, uh, but on the other side of the country. Um, and any brothers and sisters? I have a younger brother, Rob, right. who's uh, four years younger than me. Uh, he lives um, in Redland Bay in Brisbane, right, south right. of Brisbane, yeah. Right. Now, you mentioned before that we put the podcast on that uh, you don't actually live in the Territory anymore. Oh, no, I feel like a bit of a fraud being on a Territory-based <laughs> show. I still consider the Territory home, and I'm lucky enough through my employment to be coming back here on a very regular basis and to have uh, lots of networks of friends and colleagues that I catch up with, and I absolutely love the place, but... Um, for reasons I won't go into, I actually don't live here anymore, no, so I'll confess that up front. Okay, but your business card says Charles Darwin University, mm. Senior Research Fellow, Demography and Growth Planning. That's right. So, uh, and so you're still employed by CDU? Still employed by CDU. I'm in my 13th year there Right. Um, now. Um, it is the case in academia and lots of other professions now that um, people are working remotely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, the field I'm in, demography, is a very small field. There's literally a handful of experienced demographers and population researchers in Australia. Right. So it's very hard to find and keep people in the Territory. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a strong need, we'll probably get onto this later, but there is a strong need because of the Territory's population and, and how different it is to other places in Australia to, for people to understand how it works how it doesn't work, how it's changing, why it's changing. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I've been managed to keep um, research on that going and and, that, and my link to CDU and the Territory. Um, so I did, I mentioned I started with the Bureau of Statistics. I worked there for 10 years, then left to uh, go and work in Queensland, ended up at UQ, then Southern Cross University, then back in the Territory again right. at mm. Charles Darwin Uni. Yeah. And so you did a master's before your PhD? Yes, I did a master's in tourism informatics, which is just around the data architecture of tourism statistics in Australia. Yeah. And then I've done a graduate certificate in management and, yeah, the PhD. And what was your PhD in? It was about my personal, essentially, my personal uh, 
gripes with the way we uh, talk about and treat um, the future migration intentions of Indigenous people in remote Australia. And that probably makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. Um, Dig down on that for us. Mm. I like where it's headed, but I don't okay. really understand it. Um, so I think it's a commonly held perception that... Okay, so um, people are surprised when I tell them that 80% um, of Australia's Indigenous people live in urban areas because there is still this colonial uh, carryover um, in a lot of people's minds that um, somehow they're all out bush on their, on their land and in inverted commas and that's where people want to be and want to stay. And in the Territory in the past we have designed programs that fit that perception um, such as the return to country assistance we give people, which is a genuinely needed thing for some people. It, to me, it operates off the premise that uh, generally white people think they know what Aboriginal people need. You know, it's a uh, classical deficit viewpoint. Um, so what I did in my PhD, whereas um, studies elsewhere in the world on Indigenous peoples that are going through modernity and are in touch with modern civilization, if we call ourselves, if we're brave enough to call ourselves that, I'm not so sure, um, show that Indigenous peoples will adapt and adopt their culture and their lifestyles to the ways in which that they want to engage with, I suppose you call it the dominant culture and the, and the modern society. So to give you one example of one study I did, um, so that I'm not just talking academic claptrap to you, um, it, when I was doing my PhD, the broadband towers were rolling out to even the most remote communities in the Northern Territory. And they were getting, at the time, they, that was giving those remote communities broadband speeds that were better than my house in Leania. <laughs> and also reception mm. that was better and actually coverage that was wider. So most of the time, it, the coverage went out to the outstations as well that could have been 60 kilometres away. Probably um, better than your broadband in the Seymour. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would dare say it is. <laughs> Yeah. Um, now, all of the literature to, the, to date that talked about Indigenous people's uptake of um, personal technologies like smartphones and the internet and so on was really pessimistic. Um, the, essentially, if I could summarise it, the saying because of literacy issues, they won't be able to take it up and won't be able to use it to their benefit. Um, it'll lead to bad things like people signing up for Foxtel subscriptions. I don't want to single anyone out particularly. Signing up for things where they don't know what they're signing up for. Yeah. Um, and um, it'll cause disruption in the community because people will do things online that upsets other people and so on. Um, and so I went to communities and talked to the young people in particular about how, this after it was rolled out in a, in a series of communities, I went to those communities six to 12 months later just to talk to people and get their stories about how they were using the technologies. And um, kids, uh, well, first of all, there was the highest uptake of technology in terms of rates that wow. you would see anywhere in the world, it was just almost saturation. Yeah. Everybody had not one phone, but two. Yeah. And yes, they were on prepaid plans um, uh, in most cases, but... Um, which means there was a cost factor that might have been limiting somewhat their access and their use of, 
of the technologies. But people were using it for this very regularly and there was saturation and using it for the same things that everybody uses it for. Yeah. Um, looking at places they want to go and visit, um, looking at sporting events, looking at what bands are playing in town next yeah. week, looking at pictures of New York and dream, you know, dreaming about mm. going there. So, um, and then this literacy issue that I mentioned, I also had great pleasure in seeing or uh, hearing uh, that kids would text white people. When they texted white people, they would gather around and make sure that the spelling was wow. all correct. They were collectively wow. um, helping each other to grammatically and, and, and so on type proper texts. Not that anybody writes <laughs> proper. I don't Yeah, I was going to say, it's, um, it's um, interesting that they chose that particular demographic because, I mean, I'm constantly getting text from all sorts of people thinking, my God, who taught you English? Yeah, what is that? What does yeah, that mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other big thing that was happening, I'm sorry if I'm taking too much time on that, but it's just an example, is the young people were on chat rooms and meeting people all over the world and becoming friends with them. And so their whole, and this is, I guess, the crux of the PhD, the way they engaged with technology was changing their whole perception about space and where they live now um, and might want to live in the future, and that's the migration angle. Uh -huh. And then there was a series of studies, not just that one around, discrete studies around those sorts of issues. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Um, as soon as you started explaining what that meant in um, what I can understand, the first thing that came to mind is I've got a three-year-old who can't read, can't write, and would have what you're saying the perceptions were of that particular culture. But he knows how to work a mobile phone. Mm. He can get in, he can find the things he wants to find. He doesn't mm. know what he's... Like he's not reading it, mm. but he just... He knows how to do it. And, again, when, when you travel the world, there's people that don't speak English or can't read or write using smartphones everywhere you go because they know the, the look of the button or they mm. know the bits and pieces. So people will adapt anyway. People will adapt and adopt to their yeah. own needs. Yeah, whereas... You know, what I was saying, all the literature was the deficit. Mm. Oh, it's only going to be bad for, you know, and yet it was literacy enhancing for some kids. I'm sure there are bad yeah. stories so, as well. So, look, but, I mean, let's talk about that because, can I just say, very fascinating story so far. Uh, been very interesting and I, there's some things I want to ask you about. But let's just, um, let's just uh, I guess, segue into this issue of bad stuff. Because as a person who has not um, been involved in the work that you've done uh, or, or, or any of those studies, what I know about that or what I learnt about that from watching the news um, is the intervention. And mm. why did the intervention happen? It was because you know, it was off the back of that very bad publicity or very bad story about this two-year-old being raped. Mm. And then uh, why, was, why did that happen? Because of access to pornography. And I presume you know, that was on the back of uh, you know, access to the, the internet. Now, was that all wrong? Was that all blown out of proportion? What, what's your take on that, Andrew? Um. Yeah, I was real. I remember the moment that it was announced, and I was really shocked at hearing the. It was like the Iraq invasion, mm. pretty much. Right. To me, to mm. me. Um, that's a that's a like that's a really graphic example of that, really, isn't it? Mm. To liken it to the same. Yeah. Um, the, 
I mean, they, they found reasons to justify their aims to be seen to be doing things at the time. Um, I just think... So you completely disagreed with the need for the intervention based I'm, on your look, I'm not a political scientist, yeah. <clears throat> but <clears throat> um, working for the Bureau of Stats, I, excuse me, sorry, <clears throat> I was lucky enough to spend quite a few years because I managed the National Aboriginal Statistics Unit there, um, travelling through and working with communities and... And that's one of the beautiful things about growing up in the Territory is, you know, you play football with Indigenous people who've come from all parts of the Territory and they're your mates and it's just, mm. they're just mates. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't matter what colour they are. Um, so I just, yeah, I, um, I get a bit angry with racism and with um, sort of that deficit viewpoint, as you probably gathered, mm. and therefore with um, this notion that every Indigenous person is doing bad things all the time yeah. Yeah. just because someone said so. Yeah. Mm. Right. And, and so with your, uh, your, your... And by the way, with your PhD, was it, was it, did you pass? I mean, you obviously passed, but was it hard? Was it hard? <laughs> getting a grilling and all that on the thesis? It, it is hard. Yeah. There's no sugarcoating it. Yeah. And it should be hard. Yeah. Um, my fear is that PhDs are becoming less valuable. Mm. Um, uh, well, maybe it's an unfounded fear, but and universities are becoming less valuable because their value has been diminished by um, decreased funding and um, the focus on almost to the exclusion of all other things on generating um, money, essentially. Yes. Mm. So they're not necessarily places to think anymore mm. where you get time to think. Yes. Um, and to be fair, <clears throat> it's not the university's fault to, to, mu to much of an extent, it's um, successive federal cuts mm. to universities and the change in the model from um, generating knowledge and, um, and social capital and so on to money, uh, yes. universities becoming yeah. self-sufficient, essentially, yeah. Yes. Mm. And so uh, after you finished your PhD, uh, you went back into... In, back into the ABS or you went into academia? Yes, I went into academia then. Actually, I finished my PhD at CDU, so I've skipped, <laughs> skipped a few <laughs> things on the way. I did yeah. my Master's at Southern Cross University, yeah. so I went from ABS to tourism research, yeah, yeah with um, my long-standing colleague, Dean Carson, who lots of people around the Territory will know, um, and uh, then back to CDU eventually, yeah. Uh, after a stint at UQ, right. in, also in tourism research, yeah, right, and came back to um, work on a national or a territory-wide project looking at the reasons for people coming and going to the territory. Right, <clears throat> mm. and what did you learn there? Mm. Oh, lots and lots. Um, yeah, a lot of the reasons people come are the reasons they go as well, um, <laughs> such as climate, lifestyle, yeah. and jobs, most obviously. So we all know that people come to sort of experience the territory and have their great job with it and then to leave and uh, resume their career or mm. at a better level down south or the same level, having had that experience, which is kind of great because um, it creates lots of problems for us, but it also gives <laughs> us word of mouth um, down south because the, the other thing we found in that research is that 92% of people leave the territory either satisfied or very satisfied with their time here. 
92. So we've got a huge, well, we're sending out 16,000 territory advocates to other states and territories every year. Yeah, mm. I could believe that. And the, um, the uh, you could probably tell me this, but the rates of those who go and come back, we know just in our own sort of circle of friends, the amount of times people said, that's it, I'm done, I'm never coming back. And 12 months or two years or three years later, they move back because they missed it or mm. the, the opportunities they hoped for down south perhaps didn't exist or they didn't mm. like the weather or whatever it might be. Yeah, and I'm one of those people, so I've done three. Me too. Yeah, <laughs> and all my colleagues are. Yeah. yeah. And although I can't come back now, I want to in the future. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, and again, I'm basing this on no facts whatsoever, but... You know, you know of people that move to different parts of the world and they have their experience, whether it's overseas or you know, different parts of Australia that aren't where they're from originally, but I would have thought that the Territory is one of those rare ones that, that has that sort of yo-yo effect of people coming back multiple times. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in that work we did that we talked about previously, a third of people said they had some intention of coming back, and that's, again, a huge yeah. number. Um um, in the current survey we're doing, which is a kind of a, an yep. enhanced and updated version called The Territory and Me, there's a plug um, already. Please do that survey if you haven't already. I'm Where, do you find you to... Where do you find that? Yep, uh, The Territory and Me, one word. The Territory dot, and Me. Yeah, yep, yeah. .cdu.edu.au. Okay. That's a web page yeah, and cool. you get a link there. Um, and you can win some prizes if you do do it. So that survey is all about motivations for coming, staying, and or leaving yep. um, and focusing on a few cohorts in our subgroups in our population so focusing on seniors um, overseas born residents but as well um, working young working people and, and mm. yeah how are the numbers changing around that around in, in as much as whether it's the confidence whether it's planning to come back have they had enough as they talk about the economic environment um there is, yeah, there is, and there will always be if you're doing a survey on motivations, yep. Um, but early results show that it's, <laughs> it, it's a good thing, um, show that lifestyle, um, climate, and network, family networks, and jobs attract people. Um, and then for some people are only ever gonna come for three years, no matter what mm. you do, um, or, or what happens while they're here. Um, um, and so the reason those sorts of people go is for jobs and to be back with friends and family back down south so there's that leakage that's always going mm. to be inevitable in some shape or form the opportunity is to influence people who are undecided um, and so we've done all sorts of research about sort of the decay in the desire to leave so if you can keep people for two years there's a big drop off yep. in the probability of leaving if you can get them to buy a house, there's a further drop, you know, these sorts of things. Particularly right. given the real estate market, yes, yes. with it going uh, backwards all the time. Once yeah. they bought a house, they're locked in. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, right, and so, so you are doing all this research for the Territory Government as part of the Boundless Possible? Um, so the survey itself has come out of the population strategy. We, yeah. um, before the population strategy, um, the government asked us to... Um, synthesise 12 years of research on the Territory's population in the context of the low population growth era that we were in. Um, this is two years ago. Mm 
to come up with some approaches mm. to help them come up with some approaches to turning the ship around yep. yeah and so we essentially said if we can make a small bit of difference across a range of subgroups that are some of which i just mentioned in the population then because the turnaround that's needed to return us to sort of long-term average growth in absolute numbers is not very big because we're small yeah. mm -hmm. then a small bit of difference to each of those cumulatively might help drive us or turn that ship around yeah right um and of course then we also recommended well you've got to have some research to back up um on which to base the strategy and to look at and evaluate how it's going yeah mm. and that's what the current survey is a little bit about yeah right and so you know some of the strategies as i understand it is obviously advertising down south they seem to be doing that uh they there's incentives for people to buy a house uh which I think rubbed, rubbed uh, some people's noses uh, up the wrong way uh, mm. uh, because the locals felt like, you know, what do we chop live or something? It of always thing? does. Yeah. It always <laughs> does. Every time yeah. there's some sort of first home buyers yeah. or second home buyers or whatever, yeah. those that missed out yeah. get annoyed, those that get it love it, and then it's always yeah. swings around about Yeah, yeah. but mm. what I wanted to ask you in, in all of this is, you know, is the strategy. Is this, should the strategy be bringing people back up from down south, right? Or should we be looking at overseas migration? Mm. Because everything that I see in relation to overseas migration seems to, appears to me to have more stickability. Mm. And I, like I say, I use the word appears because I'm not, you know, this is not an I'm not an academic right so it's all perception for me uh, and I, you know I think about the growth in uh, for example in Alice Springs the mm. growth in the Indian population up here the growth in the Filipino population which I understand is either second or third after the Greek population here so no, it's first yeah. it's first mm -hmm. is it my goodness wow. you know that? Yeah. wouldn't surprise me yeah. wouldn't right. surprise me so everywhere you go now there's Filipinos in Darwin yeah right. you just pick yeah. up the accent <laughs> yeah, so you are an academic because you've done your research <laughs> and everything you just said is, is true. Um, so um, back to your question, I would say that it's about both and make, as I say, making a difference in a range of areas. Right. Um, retaining a few people that would have otherwise left. Um, now we have an ageing, a with the fastest ageing place in Australia. The Northern Territory. I did really know that. Um, wow. Proportionally, yeah. I must say. Yeah. But it's an it's an interesting line. To, yeah. People are yeah. often surprised. Um, and so we have a, a relatively large group of people moving through into retirement now. Right. And these are some of them are people that um, established self government after. Uh, yes. Sorry, established the public service and so yes. on after self government. Yeah. Are now retiring. Um, some are shorter term territorians. Um, so traditionally, most people leave either pre-retirement or just after the territory. That's not unique to us. It's quite common in sort of northern, more remote places of the world, developed world. Um, can we um, encourage a few, 300 a year, 400 a year who would have left yeah. to stay? So it's about attract, uh, retention of yeah. some people. And then it is definitely about attraction of some people and definitely including overseas migrants yeah. and um, 
what's happened in the Territory is what I call the big shift in overseas migration, which is exactly what you've talked about. So the traditional source countries that were fueling our positive overseas migration of the UK, US, and sort of Central European countries, Germany to some extent, um, Netherlands and a few others. They're basically stagnant or yes. falling yeah. in numbers um, that are coming. Um, but we've got these new migrant communities um, that are really growing rapidly. Um, one is the Philippines, which is now accounts for more overseas born people in the territory than any other group. Mm. The other is the Indian population, which has grown 500% since the last census. Wow. Uh, sorry, I'm sorry, I correct myself there, in 10 years to right. the last census. Wow. In a decade. And that's in the territory. In the territory, wow. yeah. And so this big, sh uh, China, um, Nepal, a few others, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, yeah. uh, and a few others. So this shift from being Eurocentric driven migration to Asia centric. Yeah. And that's, again, common across the world yeah. as the, the middle classes in those countries yeah. uh, grow. And, um, and it's particularly through skilled migration that yes. this has happened. Well, Brian, yeah. that'd be music to Brian's ears because he's been saying yeah, that yeah. For, for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, um, as you were talking, I was thinking, I wonder how much uh, Uber's responsible for some of that. But once you said skilled migration, probably not much. Yeah. No, there's only four Uber cars in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's not many. Hmm. No, because, I mean, look, it's really interesting to hear that. Uh, you know, the, the biggest story, as you know, in the Northern Territory right now is population. You know, wherever you go, you talk to the developers, you talk to, you know, the person off the street. Everyone is like, oh, you know, we're bouncing along the bottom. When are we going to start moving up? And, you know... All roads lead to population growth, mm. and, and to hear and, and to read, you know, recently that we lost about four and a half thousand people. I think in the last little while of, of people leaving the territory, I, that that came off. I think an ABC article, possibly. No, mm. it might have been Core Logic. I, I, I was wondering about that before yeah. when you were talking. I was thinking, could you put some headline mm. numbers around that, yeah. if you can? Where are we today, as opposed to say five years ago or two yeah. years ago? So the present day era of low growth, is, is what I call it, um, started in 2013-ish, 2012-13. And it's, it's been a progressive build-up in, in build-up. It's been progressively a reduction in our competitiveness in the interstate migration market right. that's driving it. So the positive story is overseas migration is continuing to be buoyant yes. and we're attracting these new overseas communities. What is happening is that um, fewer people who choose to migrate out of other states, uh, not fewer, a lower proportion, yeah. choose to come to the territory. So yeah. I'll give you an example. We used to receive 12% of every person that left South Australia. Mm. Um, now, we, now it's about half of that. Right. So that sort of thing has happened across all the other states, with the exception of some areas in the north of Queensland and, and the whole of WA, with whom we still have a strong interstate, uh, a strong migration link and mm. flows. Um, so we've, yeah, so we've lost competitiveness. Now we've always had a huge turnover in the territory. Yeah. We all know that anyone yeah. who's been here for a while. We've always received about 17,000 people from interstate each year, yes. and we've always sent out about 17,000 <laughs> wow. each year. Yeah. At the moment, we're receiving 15,000. This is not exact figures, 
and sending out 17 or 18. Right. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So we had this, what, demography. So we're not le- losing more people than we were previously losing? Is that what you're saying? We're losing more and we're gaining less. Right. Yeah. Because right. mm-hmm. I can see we're gaining less, yeah. but it sounded like we weren't losing any more than normal. Yeah. But we, you, you're saying that we are. Uh, we are slightly losing more. Right. And when you combine that with gaining less, right. the net right. is what we look at, yes. uh, of course, because that's what is the difference. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so the net interstate migration. Because yeah. that's an important story, Andrew, because mm. the, the perception in the community is that we are losing more people. Um, not, not, not talking about how many we're gaining, but there's more people leaving town. But I, I get the feeling from you is that we're not losing much more than we normally would. Um, it's just exacerbated by the fact that we're not gaining people as much as we usually do. Um, yeah, it is definitely both. Um, it depend, you know, if you break it up by age groups, um, we are losing a lot more pre-retirees and retirees. Right. Um, just because of the sheer, uh, demographers would call it, structural demography of people, of the population ageing. Okay. Right. Yeah. So they're not being replaced by as many younger people. As we used to replace, or we would have otherwise if we had kept our long-term migration patterns for those people, Right, if that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. there's much more complex dynamics at play. So you're saying that part of the the people that we're losing is because the population is ageing? Partly, yes. Right, so So that's hard to replace. Very hard to replace because it's difficult to attract retirees. Yes. When you're not already a retiree destination. Yes. Unless so you're Malulabar or Harry uh, yes. Bay yes. or Tasmania Harry at the Tas- moment. Tasmania? Oh, yeah. Really? Right. Yeah. Wow. like the cold. Yeah. Yeah. People yeah. Are opting for cryogenics down the track. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that one away. <laughs> okay, I've, got, uh, I've written two things down here that I wanted to ask you about. You, you mentioned in your PhD that you, you, you had researched indigenous migration and you mentioned the fact that uh, 80% of the indigenous population in Australia lives in cities which I must say was a statistic yeah. I wasn't aware of yeah. um, so are, are you saying there's more and more uh, indigenous migration to the cities or is it sort of stagnant? Mm. So one of the things I've been very lucky to have the opportunity to do in my career is to engage with researchers who do similar stuff to me in other parts of the world and in my PhD, that included uh, places like Alaska, Greenland, the north of Canada, and so on. And the overwhelming megatrend for human beings is that we're progressively, um, more of us as a proportion of the population are living in big cities. And that goes for everybody, every subgroup in the population, including indigenous people. Now, in places like Alaska, what they found was that um, as people more people became more highly educated, indigenous peoples of Alaska, um, the flows into the cities started to increase. And we should entirely expect that um, because people who are educated look for jobs and the jobs usually in well, there's more mm. jobs in the big city. And cities have an attractiveness in their own right. The big city lights phenomenon mm. um, definitely is the case. Human beings just gravitate to cities at the moment. Goodness knows why. <laughs> I don't like them. So with so with that, um, in, in the case of indigenous migration, are we talking Jabiru to Catherine, or are we talking Darwin, or are we talking 
you know, mm. proper capital cities. Yeah, and of course, thank you for correcting me because I've been generalising and I, I don't want to generalise. Um, there's, yes, yeah, so there's three, maybe four different types of migration we're talking about here for Indigenous Territorians, if we want to talk about Indigenous Territorians. One is the short-term stuff that people often think of around cultural activities or just visiting friends and family in another community. Um, that's still big and accounts for a lot of things. Demographers tend to deal in residential mobility where people make a conscious choice to declare they've changed their residence and the, the facility for us to analyse that is through the census data. And so most of what I say is based on that. Mm. Now the census data is fantastic. I spend five years pouring through it and go nowhere near to answering all the questions mm. I'd like to answer before the next lot hits me and I do it all again. Um, I can just imagine your desk with all these piles of paper on it. It's all online now, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I can do it from anywhere in the world. Um, so there's that short-term intra or inter-community. Then there's the other stuff where people um, say they've moved from um, a community into, say, Alice, and then maybe up to Darwin. So that sort of, uh, a colleague of mine once called it funneling up. Yep. Um, that happens, and that still happens. What's different now is that the net migration to other states and territories of Indigenous Territorians has grown. It sort of doubles every five years. Um, um, and, um, also, and there's one other <laughs> that I failed to mention, is that within settlements themselves in the Territory, remote settlements, the general trend is away from the small ones to the bigger ones. Mm. Yeah. So there's, again, sorry, yeah. quite a, a dynamic set yeah, of influences yeah. here. That net loss to interstate is the equivalent of a large community every five years. Wow. Is so leaving communities to go interstate? This is, um, this is all of the territory. Yeah. So, but yes, some of it is from, from communities. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, we shouldn't be surprised. People go for jobs. Yeah. Um, yeah. People go for sporting uh, careers. Yeah. You know, there's lots of territory footballers in the AFL. Yeah, true. Um, at various levels, for example. Um, people go, just like all of us, to get away from where they are. Mm. Um, they don't like where they are, so they go somewhere else. Mm. Um, uh, but usually people's migration decisions are a complex set of things. If mm. you think about yourselves, why you've chosen to move at any point of time, it depends on what's happening at the time yes. and a range of factors for your future that yes. you weigh up and, and off you go. Mm. Or don't go. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, the, the, so the other question that I had was, just in terms of Darwin or the Territory being a desirable place for, for migrants to come to, um, we here don't seem to have the same kind of negative factors that you see in southeastern Australia, you know, which is, I call it the Hanson factor, if you like, of, you know, um, there seems to be pushback against migrants, uh, you know, particularly when you look at places like Sydney and Melbourne and to a lesser extent Brisbane, mm. people seem to have this thing that, oh, you know, we're, we're full. You know mm. what I mean? Mm. Whereas... Yeah. We're <laughs> Sorry, we're full. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No vacancy. <laughs> very, polite, <laughs> very polite, Pete. Um, but the, the territory, as long as I've known it, has never, 
ever had that type of thing. And we've always appeared to be welcoming to, mm. to migrants, uh, you know, at all times. Mm. I've never known any negative mm. uh, aspect to that. Yes, um, I think that's just so true. And I think it's our opportunity. And I think it's something we can tell the world and be proud of. Um, and I think it is something that keeps uh, new overseas migrants, helps to keep them here. Um, uh, but keep in mind that people are coming for jobs primarily. That's right. They're on skilled visas or other visas That's that right. are related to employment. Yeah. The, the question is, yeah, how can we keep them here? Now, some overseas migrants will always and want to end up in the city down south, but yes. um, the, the research on keeping overseas migrants in regional or remote places all says you've got to make them feel welcome within the first year yes. and sooner if possible. They must feel like they're embedded in, in the community. Mm. They must feel safe. They must be happy with their kids' education. Yes. So I think there's something to be said there about the mix of those things, not to mention that we're just a friendly place yes. um, and an easygoing place still compared to other parts of the world, and that really appeals to, to some, I'd imagine. Yeah. yeah. It is a unique factor, yeah. and I've, I've said this many times before, but it, the, the similarities with, with Darwin and, and Dubai are amazing, and that's one of the things that's always stood out for me. I moved from Dubai to Darwin, mm. and apart from, you know, obviously from a, a relatively large city to a very small one, the, the thing that always stood out to my wife and I was the fact that really... Very few people are originally from here and everybody's had at some point in time that just turned up trying to create a new set of friends, trying to create a new set of you know, work environment and everyone's had that. So you will, you'll get that reach out from someone or some people that you probably wouldn't get in a big city and whether it's a workmate or whether it's just someone that you meet randomly, you will get that in a place like like Darwin, I'm sure, you know, other parts of the territory as well. But I, I find it, even though I'm used to it and even though I understand it, I still find it unique because you travel the world and you just don't get that from other parts. No, and the world is becoming less like that. And so we stand out more for that True. in a positive way, I think. Mm. Yeah. True. Mm. Yeah. Uh, mm. Mate, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm out of questions. Pete, are you... Uh... I'm not out of questions. But you're going to tell me we're out of time. No, no, I'm not going to say that. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm done. Good. Andrew, is there anything else that you think we should know? Oh, I feel like my brain's empty now. <laughs> <laughs> I can't well, believe good. that. You've emptied a PhD's <laughs> brain. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, no, thank you for having me. I think yeah. it's really interesting what you're doing. I hope that there's something in there that's interesting to your listeners and... Um, I hope that's not the last ever episode of. You haven't killed it, don't worry. No, no. But I do want to. I, I do want to put a place mark for you for next year's uh, budget breakfast. So that was part of the reason why I was getting in contact with you, Andrew. Every year, um, Ward Keller runs mm. a budget breakfast, um, and uh, we we put together a panel where you know it's a bit like. Um, a little bit like Q and A, where mm. we you know ask people questions that relate to the territory for for business, mm -hmm. uh, and it would be fantastic to have you on there next year if you're available around May. Sometime. Okay, so, sounds good. All right, perfect. All right. Well, thank you for being on the podcast.
pleasure. Yeah. Over to you to sign off. Well, uh, we're not sure who the next guest is, but you can be guaranteed they'll be just as interesting. I can tell you who the next guest oh, is. Oh, who is yeah. it? Well, presuming that uh, he's still on board, oh, it's, yes. uh, it's uh, our member for Solomon, mm-hmm. uh, Luke Gosling. Okay. So if he doesn't turn up, it's not our fault. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So uh, that'll be episode 18. 18. And uh, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Boundless Possible. Perfect.